Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that this episode is going to enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I also hope it's going to entertain you a little bit. Here we go. This week, if you are reading along in our one-year Bible reading plan, you are going to be going through actually a total of three different books of the Old Testament, but you will read two in their entirety. Uh, You're going to start the book of Isaiah on Thursday, but before you do that, you're going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes, and you're going to read all of the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, depending on which Bible you're reading. They'll, They'll title it differently. Now, I love these books. They're fascinating, and... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to preach on them on Sunday. I'm going to be preaching on Isaiah starting this next week, and I just wrapped up preaching on Proverbs and Job. So I'm going to do uh, I'm, I'm going to cover Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon here in this podcast. Now, these are part of the wisdom literature of the Bible, just like Job and just like Proverbs. And, and the wisdom literature of the Bible is sometimes really dense and hard to understand, But it's very beautiful and it's very profound. Now, Ecclesiastes is wonderful because it's significantly less dense than some of the other books. It's much easier to read Ecclesiastes than Job, for instance. Uh, I think everyone would agree with me on that. So, we'll dive right in to Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes is, um, it is a wisdom book. And as I said on Sunday, wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is, is a skill. Wisdom is a way of life. Uh, wisdom is a, a pattern of behavior grounded in your faith in God's word and God's character. So the wisdom literature of the Bible is all about what that pattern of behavior looks like and how to apply it to your life. And interestingly, in Ecclesiastes, um, the, the conclusion of the book is going to give you a summary of the entire message in, in literally in the final two verses, I'm going to read these to you. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. The conclusion, when everything has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. In other words, right, the, the message of the whole book then is worship God, keep God's commandments, because we're all required to do that. That's the, the expectation of every person, uh, which would seem to include even people who don't know that's the expectation. Um, and the reason you do that is because God is the judge. God will judge all of our deeds. We can't keep anything hidden from God. And he will judge both our good deeds and our bad deeds. So you would presumably want more good deeds than bad deeds. Now, this is not the same thing as saying um, that that you better hope the good deeds of your life outweigh the bad deeds or otherwise you're going to go to hell. It's really more to do with what are you going to be feeling when you stand before God in judgment? If God is the judge, you have to give an accounting for your life. And there is, there is a sense throughout Scripture that you want to please God. Um, but, but we'll get more into that in, in a little bit. But, but nonetheless, that is 
that is the summary of the book. Worship God, keep his commandments, because at the end of the day, nothing is hidden and God will judge all your deeds. And so, this then helps us understand something else that is a key part of the book, which is the idea that searching for wisdom for its own sake is futile. Right? Wisdom for the sake of wisdom is pointless. And this is a very stark contrast to the wisdom traditions of other cultures, especially Greek philosophy. In those cultures, in those traditions, they would say wisdom and virtue are intrinsically good on their own. We, we pursue them for their own sake. They are the highest good. But what Ecclesiastes, and, and really what the entire biblical wisdom tradition says, is wisdom should be sought because it leads to a life of obedience to God, which is the only way to bring meaning and fulfillment in your life. And it should be pointed out that over the millennia, um, ideas from Greek philosophy have crept into Christianity in, in a lot of ways. Particularly during the Middle Ages, there's a big influx of Greek philosophy because all the priests of the church were required to study Greek philosophy in seminary. And there's a lot of good about that, but there are some challenges also because, you see, Greek philosophy identifies a lot of the same virtues that biblical wisdom identifies. Things like self-control and discipline and restraint, controlling your appetites, both your, your appetites for food and your appetites for pleasure, right? Um, they identify a lot of those same virtues as good things, but, but the, it's the motivation that's often different, and the motivation matters. The motivation matters. So the Bible does not say that wisdom is good, is, is the end. Wisdom is the means to an end. And one of the core features of Ecclesiastes is this idea of contentment. And, and it means contentment in the sense of freedom from anxiety over life's circumstances which is something that can only come from complete reliance on God. And so it's through that lens that you have to read the book, the, that, that it's talking about contentment in life only comes from complete reliance on God. And you could be forgiven for thinking that there is an element of nihilism in this book, especially because, especially in the opening chapters, but, but really all throughout, there is this phrase that gets repeated over and over again. Uh, in my Bible that I have here in front of me, it's, it's re rendered as, uh, all is futility and a chasing after the wind. And then it will, it will go into descriptions of specific things and will say, this is futility and a chasing after the wind. And this is a futility and a chasing after the wind. Um, and it can make it seem like it's saying that all this stuff is just pointless and meaningless. But that's not really the point. The point is that without God... All these things are meaningless. With God, they're all a gift. Now, other translations of the Bible in that phrase might say, instead of futility, they might render it vanity or 
meaningless. If you're reading it in the NIV in your one-year Bible, it'll be meaningless, I believe. Um, but, but the Hebrew word there is chebel. And that word actually means a breath. It refers to taking a breath or actually... Uh, really, it kind of refers more to breathing out, right? It's kind of like a puff of air, that sort of thing. Now, translation committees of these various Bibles have rendered it as futility or vanity or meaningless, uh, all to reflect a lack of value that that metaphor is trying to to communicate, because it is a metaphor in there, right? Um, they're, they're, but... They're, they're actually missing part of the point when they do so, because a breath is transitory and fleeting. And so too are all these things that Ecclesiastes is talking about. They're transitory, they're fleeting, including, and this is key, including life itself. Life, life is a breath, a chasing after wind. Life is transitory and fleeting. You have to understand that to understand what Ecclesiastes is doing. So the opening chapters detail the author who, who identifies himself as the teacher. Now the book will, the book kind of implies in the opening chapters that, that it's Solomon, but it's really not Solomon. Um, it's it, This is a book that's written sometime well after the days of Solomon, and they know this because of the style in which it's written and some of the things it says. Um, but... Remember, Solomon is sort of the, the, the originator of the Jewish wisdom tradition in the first place. And so very often you see wisdom books attributed to him, even if he's not the one who actually wrote them. So the author identifies himself as the teacher. And most likely this is not a real person. They're just sort of a personification of something that was invented for the purpose of the book. But so the opening chapters detail the teacher's pursuit of wisdom, joy, pleasure, and worldly gain, all to no avail. The idea being that, that each of these things was sought in order to achieve contentment. Pursued wisdom in order to achieve contentment. Pursued uh, joy and pleasure to achieve contentment. Pursued worldly gain to achieve contentment and found that all of these things were vanity and a chasing after the wind. They were a breath. They were transitory and fleeting it's just beautiful metaphor and poetry here. It's it's wonderfully written. I love it so much. All of it, all of all of this is vanity and a chasing after wind. It's all fleeting and transitory. And the end of chapter two. The end of chapter two is where he kind of reveals the truth. And so I'll I'll start here. In verse twenty four. There is nothing better for a person than to eat and drink and show himself some good in his trouble. This too I have seen, that it is from the hand of God, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This, too, is futility and striving after wind. So the truth is that finding contentment in God is the way 
to a good life. And the way you do this is by enjoying the, the pleasures of life, whatever they may be, precisely as gifts from God. So the best life is a life of pleasing God and enjoying God's gifts. This is an interesting balance. Generally speaking, right, in the secular world, people would, um, people would not say that the best life is about pleasing God. They would say that the best life is about uh, enjoying pleasure and worldly gain as much as you possibly can. Living in comfort and peace and indulging your desires as much as you can. All too often, Christians veer way too hard in the opposite direction and say the only pleasure in life is doing what God wants us to do and denying ourselves worldly pleasures. But what Ecclesiastes says is actually, the good things in this life are gifts from God. And God wants you to enjoy them. So the best life is a balance of pleasing God and enjoying God's gifts. Now, obviously, if you're doing this right, this means you won't be indulging all your desires whenever you want. It means you won't be a glutton. It means you won't be a drunkard. It means you won't be uh, overly indulging in your sexual interests, to put it mildly. Uh, it means you'll be showing restraint in all of these things because that is pleasing to God. And, we'll, and he'll deal with that uh, in, in various ways later in the book and other wisdom Books will also deal with this idea that restraint is a good thing. But but right now he's concerned with saying, look, it's okay to enjoy your life. It's okay to it's okay to enjoy your rest from your labor. It's okay to enjoy your food and drink because they're they're gifts from God. And it is precisely when you recognize that all of these things are gifts from God and that they are fleeting and that they are transitory, that you will begin to truly enjoy them. And this is a key part of of the philosophy at work here. The idea that by recognizing that all of these things are nothing more than a breath and a chasing after the wind, that that's when you find value. This is why I have a problem with the translation rendering that as vanity or meaningless or futility. I understand what they're trying to do, but in, in using those words, they assign a value, a negative value to the phrase that it doesn't really have in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is not trying to make it sound negative. It's trying to make you recognize these things don't last. Enjoy them while you can. And more importantly, it's trying to get you to recognize that the only way to truly enjoy God's gifts is to recognize their temporary fleeting nature. And this applies to all of life. That's the core of the philosophy here. If, if all of these gifts from God are temporary and transitory and fleeting, you have a limited amount of time to appreciate them. And by recognizing that, you will appreciate them all the more. And so he moves on. And then chapter 3 opens with one of my, my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I'm just going to read it. I love this passage. It's it's three verses one through, uh, well, I guess I can read one through, I'm just going to read one through eight, so you get the poetry here. 
There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven. A time to give birth, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to tear down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing. A time to search, and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep, and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart, and a time to sew together. A time to be silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. I don't know about you, I, I find this little passage extremely comforting for some reason. I love this notion that there's just there is a time for everything. If you are if you are in the middle of a time for war, you can take comfort in knowing that there will come a time for peace. For all of these things, right? The other translations will say a season for these things, right? Uh, there's there's a season for everything. Reminds me of the old proverb, which is not biblical. It comes out of another source, and, and people are arguing over um, exactly where it came from. But the idea of, a, of an ancient king who ordered his servants to make him a ring that would help all his troubles go away. And they gave him a gold ring inscribed with the phrase, This too shall pass. This to me is sort of an expanded version of, of the saying that this too shall pass. Whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever whatever pain and suffering you have right now, it too shall pass. There is a season in life for everything. And the other implication of all this is that these seasons, these times, they're beyond our control. We can't actually do anything to change them. We might as well accept them and find contentment in God in the midst of them. And again, there's a deep, deep wisdom involved in that. In accepting that I can't change this, it will pass. And in the meantime, I'll have to just live in it. Just beautiful. I love it. I, I often read that passage when I'm having difficulty in my own life. And then he moves on into, uh, into chapter 4. Chapter 4 will deal with oppression. And he has a really interesting approach to oppression, in which he says that both the oppressed and the oppressor are suffering because neither will find contentment in what they're doing. And then he asserts that oppression is the result of envy which goes against God's command to love your neighbor. So if you are oppressing someone, you can't possibly be living a life that is pleasing to God. But it's an interesting approach that the oppressor is suffering just like the victim is. That probably wouldn't fly very well if I said that out in public in today's society, but it's a, it's a fascinating idea, right? They're both suffering. And actually the oppressor is doing the oppressing because they are suffering, because they are are seeking contentment in a way that will never actually lead to contentment. In other words, the solution to oppression and suffering is God. 
Let's skip ahead a bit to chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7 is kind of a dark chapter. It talks a lot about death and mourning and says weird things like mourning is better than laughter and, and what's going on here. Well, in chapter 7, he's making the case that true wisdom would lead us to embrace death as a defining feature of life. This is shocking to us. We don't do this, right? We, um, we try to ignore death at all costs. We even, we even uh, when, when a loved one dies, we don't even like to say they're dead. We like to say they've passed away. They're no longer with us. Right? They've gone to their eternal home. We euphemize it and we soften it. We, we don't even really, you know, when we very rarely see dead bodies anymore, most of us, right? If we do, they're usually uh, embalmed and they've had makeup put on and they've had their hair done and they've had their clothes, their nice clothes put on and they're in a nice fancy casket made to look as lifelike as possible. And I don't know about you, but every time I have been to an open casket funeral, I have not had that thought of, oh, they look so lifelike. I've always thought, this looks wrong. It doesn't look right. Um, we avoid the idea of death at all costs. We, we spend a lot of time agonizing over how we can prolong life and delay death. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is the show Scrubs, which is it's a comedy TV show set in a hospital, right? The characters are doctors and nurses, and it's... Uh, anyway, I'd recommend it, but it's also wildly inappropriate, and I feel weird as a pastor recommending you go watch that show. But, uh, but I love it. I think it's hilarious. Um, but it's also... There's a lot of, of depth to it, and one of the reasons I love it is because it can sort of veer from lighthearted comedy to really deep, deep truths in the blink of an eye. Uh, and there's a moment early on in the show where one character is saying to another, as you know, they're doctors and they're struggling with what they have to do and one of them says look you've got to understand everything we do here is just a delaying action all these people will die eventually all we are doing is pushing that date back and it's clear that in that moment it's a revelatory notion right these young doctors had thought they were there to fight death and that they could win and, and an older more experienced doctor comes back and says no you can't you will never defeat death death is inevitable all you're doing is delaying it as long as you can. And that's what we do. Now, Jesus, of course, has defeated death for us once and for all. But that just means we come back to life after we die. What, what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to do is to look death right in the face. To acknowledge that it is a defining feature of life. To embrace it even. For one simple reason. When we acknowledge that our lives are finite. That we have a death date. We enjoy the time we have even more. This, by the way, is another great example of how the biblical wisdom tradition shares a lot in common with Greek philosophy. The philosophy of Stoicism in particular uh, highly encourages this idea of remembering not only that you will die, 
but that your loved ones will die. So there's an ancient Stoic practice where they encourage people, as you're putting your children to bed each night, to tell yourself they won't survive until morning. Not to be morbid or to make you sad, but to make you appreciate that moment all the more. The general practice in Stoicism is to, to actually imagine what your life would be like if your children and your spouse were suddenly killed. To imagine the pain of going on in life without them by your side. Not just not to make you sad, but to make you appreciate the time you have with them so that you are more present and more attentive. There's also a practice called the memento mori, the, the reminder of mortality. Uh, and you can even buy, by the way, posters. They make posters now that have like a like numbers on them representing the weeks of your life. And you can mark off the weeks you've already lived. And what you're left with is the number of weeks you are likely to have left. It's, it's a guess, obviously. But it's a fascinating idea, right? Remember your life will end. This is how much time you've got left. Appreciate it. Not, it's not meant to be morbid or sad. It's meant to help you appreciate the time you have left as a gift from God. There is profound wisdom in Ecclesiastes. Great, great book. I'm going to move on now, though. The Song of Solomon. Everyone's favorite Bible book, right? This book is so strange to us, we have no idea what to do with it. And that's a shame. It's a beautiful example of love. And it is a, it is a book of love poetry. Um, even though it's sometimes called Song of Solomon, it's pretty clear Solomon did not write this. Uh, so we, we don't know who wrote it, but it is a book of love poetry, and it's gorgeous. There's two lovers in the book, a man and a woman, uh, you know, they, they feel this great longing for each other. Their desire is, their desires for each other are remarkably strong. And the book is undeniably erotic, by the way. Um, there is a reason why, for a very long time, Jewish boys, Jewish children in general, were not allowed to read Song of Songs until they turned 13. It was considered too inappropriate for anyone under the age of 13. Uh, so it's undeniably erotic, and it's actually full of sexual innuendo. Even if the innuendo is so archaic that we often fail to recognize it, it's there. Um, <laughs> it is definitely in there. And the thing is, though, it's never pornographic. It, uh, it hints, it implies, but it always leaves mystery. And in this way, the book helps us actually to understand how to handle the power of erotic love. And I think the church probably would have done a much better job over the past several centuries of talking about love and sex, if it had spent more time reading Song of Songs. Um, because the, the book makes it clear that you can't deny or ignore the power of erotic love, right? Chapter 8, verse 7 says, Rushing waters can't quench love. What we can do, though, is we can address it and we can speak of it with courtesy, restraint, and respect. Even if some of those things are meant only to be whispered in your lover's ears rather than shouted from the rooftops. And so it does give us this beautiful picture of, of how to handle our love for each other, both in private with our lover and in public. It's, it's 
a holy love, a love that is set apart. It doesn't deny the erotic side of it. It just celebrates it in a way that is holy and fitting and beautiful. And in that way, it provides us a model for how we, uh, how we deal with our love for our spouses or for the people we would like to marry. And there's lots of wisdom in there as well, right? Do not awaken love until it's ready. Things like that. Fantastic stuff. Beautiful, beautiful poetry. And as I said, if we, if we had done a better job of reading this book and teaching this book, maybe we would have done a better job of teaching our congregations about love and marriage and sexuality in the first place. Because it makes it clear there's nothing... Um, impure or wrong about erotic love. Now, obviously, we can treat it and approach it in ways that are impure and wrong and unholy. And to get an example of what, what it looks like when we handle our erotic love in ways that are beautiful and good and sacred, we can turn to Song of Solomon's, Song of Songs. We can see, obviously, these are two lovers whose desires are only for each other, for one thing. They aren't chasing after a bunch of different people trying to satisfy their needs. Their desires are all directed towards each other. And there is um, there's longing for each other. There is respect for each other. There is um, admiration and even awe for each other. It's magnificent. Absolutely beautiful stuff. Every married couple, especially, should read uh, Song of Songs, I think, whether together or separately. I actually had a professor in seminary. His wife was also a professor there, and they would, when they, they would occasionally teach an undergraduate course on biblical literature. When they did that, one of the classes was on Song of Songs, and they would, they would begin the lesson by turning off the lights in the room, lighting a candle, and reading Song of Songs to each other because there's a male part and there's a, a woman's part. Um, that might be a bit too intense for me, but but interesting approach nonetheless. Um, so there's this beautiful portrayal of erotic love that we should not be shying away from, and we should be embracing it and studying it and teaching it uh, and helping people to understand that, that, yes, this is actually what love between man and wife is meant to be. This is what it's supposed to look like. You can embrace that side of it without being ashamed. And here's how you you do that without also becoming lewd or disrespectful. So it's a wonderful book, even though it's quite short. But there's another level to this. Because it is in the canon of Scripture, and because it has been forever, it was, it was part of the Hebrew Bible long before Christianity came around, even ancient Jewish theologians believed that in addition to providing a beautiful image of human love, it also provides an allegory for the love between God and his people. And we see this reflected in other books where God is portrayed as, um, well, in, in different ways. As in some places, God is portrayed as a father. In some places, God is portrayed as, as a mother. Uh, in the New Testament, particularly, there is a common image of Christ and the church as his bride. And I believe that that is very intentionally trying to call to mind the passion of Song of Songs. The depth and the passion of the love there is an allegory for the depth and the passion of the love that God has for us 
and that we, in turn, are meant to have back for God. And this points to something in the future. All, all of Scripture and all of life and all of the things we experience in this life are meant to be pointers of, the, of what is to come in the future. All of our... We're about to get deep. Jesus tells the Pharisees in the Gospels, right, that, that in the resurrection, there no one will be married or given in marriage. Which means something replaces marriage, and that something is our intimate connection with God that will come in the resurrection. Marriage is a sign from God of what is to come. The love and, and the depth of commitment and the intimacy of marriage is a sign of what life will be like with God in the resurrection. This is why our theology of marriage and human sexuality is so important, by the way. This stuff matters. We are embodied people. The way we live our lives has theological consequences. Marriage is an embodiment of God's love. And at some point, I probably just need to do specific teaching on that because there's so much to go into that I just don't have the time for here. Uh, but this too is why um, in, in some churches, notably the Catholic Church and the Orthodox, well, not the Orthodox, I guess just the Catholic Church, right? One of the reasons priests are required to be celibate is as a pointer to the future. In the resurrection, none will be married. Catholic priests are supposed to be a, a pointer to that, that future reality. So this book as an allegory of God's love for his people is also quite important because it shows us that, that um, everything we experience now is a pale shadow of what is to come. We can expect the, the future to be even better than we can imagine. Those of us who've been happily married for a while, we can expect the future to be far better than we could ever dream of. Beautiful stuff. Just beautiful. I love the, those two books. Uh, they don't get nearly enough playing time in the church, in my opinion. And I'm guilty of not teaching them on them very often either. But they're so good. They're so rich. They're so full of wisdom for us. So uh, enjoy reading them. You'll finish them both this week, but enjoy reading them while you can and, and really soak them in. Until next week, folks, God bless.